fraternal greetings and a warm welcome to you. We're glad that you could join us on the Ashlers podcast, a space for the world's oldest fraternity to shine some light through Masonic paper readings, discussions, interviews, and more. Freemasonry is so old that our lifetime wouldn't be enough to capture its grandeur in the entirety. However, all things great should begin somewhere, and so we are thrilled to start off with season one, which will focus on Freemasonry and its roots in India, one state at a time. As a disclaimer, the thoughts and opinions expressed here are solely of the participants and do not represent any official positions including those of any grand lodge or constitutions thereof best efforts have been made to keep the conversation on the level for brethren and non masons alike Hello and welcome folks to another episode of The Ashlers, India's only Masonic based podcast. I am Shashir and I am Rinesh. So Rinesh, it's been a journey, right? Uh this is our yeah. 22nd episode, man. Yes, yes it is. <laughs> and uh, what have we done for 22 episodes? We have oh. actually covered all the Indian states. So what's left, Rinesh? union territories this exactly. is something which was obviously right there in our mind but somehow you know what we might have done uh, at least for me right all these 21 episodes which we have done or rather the 18 19 episodes which we have done about the states help me in the ge- geography of the region at least geography and history i would say and not just the history of uh, you know masonry in india but even you know the the kind of tidbits of uh, history of the country in general also like you know how things progressed and how um, you know uh, how india has come so far out from back in 1700s that we have been covering to date right so yes. <laughs> we we literally have relived the past of our great country mm-hmm. and it makes me feel amazing um and folks while we have covered all the states and obviously this episode is all about the union territories So let me talk a little about uh, union territories but before that let me also mention one thing now season 1 was dedicated to chronicling the spread of freemasonry in india one state at a time or you know collection of states again depending on our research and the information that we get um this particular episode kind of comes full circle and you know rounds up the entire chronicle that we have been doing but there's something special for all of you which will be our follow up episode if you want details about that well you're going to have to sit through the entire episode listen to it till the end so stay with us as we take you through the journey of the spreading of masonry across the union territories of india now what is a union territory right it is nothing but a centrally administered province now India is comprised of several different states. Each state has its own flavor of culture, language, traditions and what not. But there are certain fragments of or let's say territories which are too small to be a state by itself, right? Um mm-hmm. 
they have their own governments these union territories um they are federal territories governed in part or completely by the union government of india which is seated in new delhi now to talk more about this i will hand it over to ranesh over to you man thanks so why do we have union territories so this concept of union territory was first introduced in the states reorganization act back in 1956 when the states were uh, the, the borders were being defined based on the culture or based on the language which was spoken in that area now it refers to those territories that are too small to be independent as shishir mentioned or are too different now they can be different based on the economic reasons culturally or geographically and they cannot be merged with the surrounding states because well they're different now due to these reasons they couldn't survive as a separate administrative unit and had to be administered by the union government so uh, there are eight in total except for delhi other union territories have a lesser population and land size so they are too small and as i said as we said right they are too small to be independent now many of the other union territories have a different culture from their surrounding states like for example daman and diu dadra nagar haveli they were under the rule of portuguese compared to where they are right now it was bit difficult for that area or the people to actually merge or mingle with the other folks french population in pondicherry these union territories cannot be merged with the surrounding state delhi became the administrative capital of india chandigarh became the administrative capital of both haryana and punjab so they actually had their own identity as well as took up the biggest responsibility of taking care of their surrounding place delhi obviously had the biggest one because it became the capital of our country then comes lakshadweep and andaman and nicobar islands now they these two union territories are located far from mainland india so they are strategically important and that is when we were able to give them the title of a union territory now that we know what you know uh, we have fair details about the union territories let me also mention something uh, there are eight union territories in india in total out of which actually we have covered four already uh, one of it is dedicated to talking about delhi which is our sixth episode it is titled we look up to delhi and the other one is episode 9 with the title the northern roundup that episode covers jammu and kashmir ladakh and chandigarh in this episode we will be covering the other four dadra and nagar haveli and daman and diu which is just one now pondicherry or puducherry lakshadweep and then finally andaman and nicobar islands dadra and nagar haveli and daman and diu is composed of four different uh, you know different distinct areas dadra is a small enclave within the state of gujarat nagar haveli is a c shaped enclave located between the states of gujarat and maharashtra daman is an enclave on the coast of gujarat while diu is a small island off the coast of gujarat <laughs> for one union territory a really distinct place well let me let me just add one more thing dinesh which i told you right so uh, yeah. daman and diu although we say like daman and diu i had the impression that they might be you know right next to each other but there's a gap of 650 kilometers filled by the arabian sea between these two union territories so i was surprised why even call them together but yeah that's the way it is so yeah over to you rinesh yeah so let's start with dadra and nagar haveli uh, it had a pre portuguese and a portuguese history the the pre portuguese history consists of the koli chieftains and then the rajput kings and finally the marathas 
part the portuguese history was uh, well rather the portuguese were granted the area of nagar haveli in 1783 on the basis of a friendship treaty and uh, listeners when i'm saying the friendship treaty i'm using the two double quotes executed in 1779 as compensation towards the damage to the portuguese frigate santana by the maratha navy wow now the treaty allowed the portuguese to collect revenue from 72 villages in this place nagar haveli then in 1785 the portuguese purchased dadra annexing it to and became and made it a part of portuguese india now in 1818 when the maratha empire was defeated by the british in the third anglo maratha war the portuguese ultimately became the de facto or rather became the effective rulers of dadra and nagar haveli portuguese rule from that time lasted all the way till 1954 when dadra and nagar haveli were captured by the supporters of the indian union because india had got independence just around 1947 and many of these small places or the princely states were all trying to either become part of india or wanted to be separate and all those uh, storylines so this place dadra and nagar haveli was the first colony to be detached from the empire by the occupation of the indian union in 54 after nearly two centuries of portuguese rule now uh, the name daman is probably derived from the daman ganga river while du is from the sanskrit word dwipa which means island now before the arrival of the portuguese both daman and diu were part of the sultanate of gujarat during the 15th and 16th centuries early in the 16th century the sultan of gujarat that is bahadur shah he came under immense pressure when his kingdom was invaded by the mughal emperor himayun at that juncture he decided to remain on conciliatory terms with the portuguese who had arrived in india at the end of the 15th century and were at the time a very energetic and ambitious maritime power in 1534 the shah signed the treaty of basin with the portuguese where diu was ceded to the portuguese as well as other territories from his empire such as vasai and the islands that today form mumbai the portuguese obtained daman from the shah in 1559 Diu became an important port for the Portuguese who built a large fortress over there as well as other many you know different kinds of buildings and within a few years of acquiring the island Gujarati ships using the port of Diu were required to pay duties to the Portuguese you know for centuries both Daman and Diu remained part of the Portuguese dominions in India and were ruled from Goa there's one more little thing i want to add here um i was i remember seeing some travel you know uh, youtube video and this guy goes mm-hmm. to the island of diu and he shows that that uh, fort and there are so many cannons like heavy cannons and those cannons are made of something called uh, you know uh, panch dhatu basically it's mm-hmm. an alloy of five different metals right and uh, he also showed one like right now it is in shambles but it was like a court so he was saying uh, you know the portuguese would hold court over there and any disputes and all would be uh, you know handled in that particular room or, or rather hall so there are no there's no roof on that but you can see those arches which uh, mm-hmm. you know really reminded me of uh, you know the weakest part of the building has fallen off but the building itself stands a true testament to the yeah. masonry of those days masonry again yeah. i'm talking about big, you know creating buildings uh, 
and not the freemasonry masonry <laughs> all right as a as a matter of fact shishir uh, if you notice right dius location was very strategic because any ship which used to come from the middle east right they had to cross that section and obviously they realized that that is the best place for them and portuguese had like many convenient places one of them was uh, aden in uh, the near the gulf of aden itself which was near the saudi place so when they are leaving the port and they had to actually stop over there to obviously ensure that they get all the uh, goods and uh, their food supplies and everything and from there they will either stop near this place the u obviously to cross and finally they will land in bombay and also uh, one other thing that i remember from that video uh, there's a hmm. point uh, where this person goes on the topmost part of that fort and he says hmm. that you have sea on all three sides of you like behind Perfect. is where the mainland of india is there but in front of you all three sides is sea so just imagine the kind of view you have and the cannons are pointing in all three directions exactly so that that's how they are able to safeguard and and we all know right most of the ships are obviously not going to be in the deep sea side they are have to be a little bit near the uh, land section as well because it's not like as if they are just going for some other seafaring or uh, what do you call other work or something they are supposed to be somewhere near so that they can come closer otherwise they are going to just waste the time uh, but coming to this point right dadra and nagar haveli as well as daman and diu both had a portuguese history which is what was predominant and as we have mentioned in our goa episode portuguese were actually not interested in bringing freemasonry to these places honestly speaking they themselves were not so keen on freemasonry and that is why if you notice the oldest the traces of freemasonry in portugal or the ones which we all know about is fairly recent compared to what we have been hearing about 300 or 400 or whatever odd years of freemasonry is all about all right and that brings me further down south of the country and i'm going to be talking hmm. about pondicherry now before i get on to pondicherry i just want to uh, apologize in advance in case i am mispronouncing some of the names here uh so please cut me that much slack <laughs> i'll do my best <laughs> all right so the original name of pondicherry was puttuseri it is derived from the tamil words puttu meaning new and seri means village now the french were again taking the shortcut <laughs> uh mm-hmm. the convenient route i guess uh, they corrupted this and made it pondicherry by which it is called even today until it was officially changed over to puducherry in 2006 it was formed out of four different territories of former french india namely pondicherry karekal mahe and yanaun or yanam now here comes the most interesting bit of this entire thing which even i did not know <laughs> to date but yeah this is I, i was laughing out loud when we were just preparing for the episode so here goes uh, the areas of puducherry district and karekal district are bound by the state of tamil nadu mahe district is enclosed by the state of kerala and yanam district is enclosed by the state of andhra pradesh now how's that <laughs> that was just well, fascinating yeah you know like you are there you can actually be part of andhra and still say that you are in pondicherry you can be in kerala and still say you are part of pondicherry yeah you know in dadra and nagar haveli or daman diu at least had one common which was may uh, at least gujarat uh, nagar haveli at least had a bit of uh, maharashtra in it but otherwise it was still gujarat this one is amazing and i think 
this is exactly why even that history of the place of pondicherry now uh, at the beginning of the 4th century the pondicherry area was part of the pallava kingdom of kanchipuram now during the following centuries different southern dynasties controlled this place the cholas the pand the cholas of tanjavur actually the pandya kingdom and then after a brief invasion by the muslim rulers of the north who established the sultanate of madurai the vijayanagar empire took control of almost all of south india with their power lasting until 1638 when the sultan of bijapur began to rule now in 1674 it is the french east india company who set up a trading center at pondicherry that's when the name obviously might have changed from puttuseri to pondicherry now dutch and british trading companies also wanted to trade with india here comes the interesting bit the dutch captured pondicherry in 1693 but returned it to france by the treaty of ryswick in 1699 that means 6 years in 1761 the british captured pondicherry from the french but the treaty of paris at the conclusion of the seven years war returned it that means two more years now the british actually took control of the area again in 1793 almost 30 years later at the siege of pondicherry amid the wars of the french revolution and returned it to france in 1840 okay now when the british gained control of the whole of india in the late 1850s they allowed the french to retain their settlements in the country pondicherry mahe yanam karaikal and even chandernagar chandernagar by the way is in uh, uh, west bengal remained part of french india until 1954 now the independence of india in 1947 gave the impetus to the union of france's indian possession with former british india Now, an agreement between France and India in '48 stipulated that the inhabitants of France's Indian possession would choose their political future. The de jure union of French India with the Indian Union did not take place until '62, and on a de facto basis, the bureaucracy had been united with India's on '54. Finally, it was organized as a union territory in 1963, and Puducherry became a part of India. now why did i bring the point about this whole british dutch or rather the most important point being british are actually taken control and then they gave back you will come to know from this point freemasonry in pondicherry actually started with the french lodge called lodge sincere amity which was chartered back in 1787 now currently there is only one lodge in pondicherry under the grand lodge of india which is called lodge bharati number no. 161 consecrated in 1963 There are actually two more lodges that are not in Pondicherry but still meets there once in a while. Lodge Kudalor number four zero seven and Lodge Tranquility number four zero eight. Before I move on to the point about the British and the French, I would like Shishir to explain us how does this meeting of lodges in Pondicherry kind of help? That is something interesting. Uh, one, you know, brethren get to meet others from a different place altogether. you know there is social gathering that happens uh, exchange of information exchange of greetings and what not from two different you know locations that is one thing the other thing is you also get to travel out of your city you know it's like a bit of a break from your normal routine your work your usual familiar surroundings and believe me the drive from chennai till pondicherry it's too good because you're you know running parallel to the sea coast for the most part and it's a very beautiful experience and that way brethren can also come together and even help each other out as we have seen in several different examples in you know some of our past episodes rinesh yeah so moving on from its origin 
Freemasonry were always meant to be the center of union, bringing together men who would have stayed at a perpetual distance, like Shishir was talking about. But I'm just bringing the history part of it. So, to bringing together men who would have stayed at actually a perpetual distance and to found the universal brotherhood of man. Now, in colonial India, this took the form of a cosmopolitan sociability that was quite unique and offers an explanation as to why Freemasonry came to function as the handmaid of trade. Now, if you notice. these all people who had obviously come and settled in uh, india and started freemasonry right? they were mostly merchants initially east india company they obviously weren't coming here obviously they came with the forces that's a different thing uh, apparently to safeguard themselves and to take care of certain things but they were merchants now these merchants and masonic networks worked hand in hand because they were both active forces of transnational globalization one example Lodge Perfect Unanimity Number One Fifty, consecrated in seventeen eighty six back in uh, in Madras, offered a good illustration of this common social paradigm. The membership roll from seventeen ninety six reveals the presence of four Frenchmen hailing from Lodge Lafrettenite Cosmopolite, which is part of Grand Orient, based in Pondicherry. Three of which were registered as free merchants. Now the membership role also reveals the presence of a person Peter Holger Lindum. He is apparently a factor of the Danish East India Company. So think about this. Lodge Perfect Unanimity, which was part of the English constituency, was having members who were part of French and members who were part of the Danish. Now, Lodge Perfect became a social venue in which these European commercial interests were. trading interest basically in india could meet on the level and potentially even collaborate see the presence of french masons in lodge perfect unanimity over the period extending from 1789 to 1796 is remarkable because if you know your history or if you have actually take if you understand the uh, year which we are talking about it was marked by acts of warfare opposing these two countries the third anglo mysore war and the fourth anglo mysore war were done between this 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 year besides in 1793 when the french revolutionaries declared war on england british troops besieged and captured pondicherry but freemasonry existed continued and brethren still met on the level a member of lodge perfect actually uh, perfect unanimity actually died during that siege and yet the members of the two lodges visited each other on a regular basis including the governor of pondicherry who visited lodge perfect unanimity in 1790 and 92 that was right in the during the third anglo mysore war a few months and this was obviously also few months before the siege of pondicherry unsurprisingly the french and english masons shared a strong commitment to the monarchy so you have a bond of brotherhood which does not deter you from your moral uh, sorry your actual uh work your main important work which is to take care of certain things now uh, in 1793 monsieur delat etang the grand master of lafrettenite cosmopolite thanked the masons of madras for the very generous manner in which they remembered the unfortunate monarch louis the 16th on the last saint john's day which happens to be on june 24th Masonic membership therefore articulated the local and the global and offered an unofficial code of conduct between European merchants. Shashir, what do you think about this? All these people coming together. Well, let me put it this way: ideologies might be different, our allegiances might be different, 
but what is it that binds one human to another well obviously it's the fact that we are humans right you peel the skin off and you cannot you know distinguish one human from another regardless of their skin color their religion their name you know their place of birth or what have you now that is where the ideals of of uh, freemasonry uh, forms that that glue that mortar that you know binds everyone together into one magnificent building right and i think nothing uh, like we have had different examples right in the past in our previous episodes as well i'm sure we have spoken about how uh, lodges that started during the british era were handed over to you know the indian counterpart or indian brethren by the british brethren when the uh, independence took place but until then both indians and the british were running the lodges together they were worshipful masters who were british and the lords ruled over both of them alike there they were even worshipful masters who were indian during british era mm. who ran the lodges which had britain as well as indian uh, you know brethren in that my own lodge is one such lodge if i you know go back 100 years into the past i can see a lot of indian and british names in that too and rinesh i'm i'm sure same for you too right so it's it's that commonality of universal brotherhood that brings people and kept people together rinesh right. over to you yeah so when you're born right you are human and after that the tag of the religion the tag of your caste or your creed or your as a matter of fact even sometimes the nation also comes later because depending upon where you're born it actually changes but otherwise you are still human now imagine if a french and an english were always used to be fighting with each other for something or the other like seven years war or what not like if they were able to sit inside a lodge room and finish or conduct their meetings in peace i somehow hope or rather i somehow want this four walls of that lodge to expand to the world so that we can actually forget the animosity which we have been having because of whom we belong to or what we belong to or what ideology i profess or what religion i follow and treat the other person sitting in front of me or standing in front of you or whatever it is as a human being or rather very simple i would like the person to treat me as the way i would he i would treat uh, he would treat me that's it it's it's very simple it's not that difficult can i add one point to that yeah <laughs> it's as simple as treat someone like how you would want others to treat you no one wants True. to be screamed at no one wants to be discriminated against so why should we right why should it might yeah it might give someone a few moments of superiority but that could be turned on its head within seconds right um, yes so i think as a message as a general message if we were to just say this that if one truly believes in uh, in in establishing a peaceful coexistence uh with anyone else you know and i'm not talking at a country level i'm not talking at a community level i'm talking at an individual level because a country or a community is still composed of individual people acting in a certain way so at an individualistic level if we internalize this aspect of a human being a human i think the world will actually become a much better place and 
i know that's that might sound like wishful thinking but <laughs> if we ought to survive the next 100 500 or 1000 years i don't think fighting among ourselves is going to work it may have worked uh, for the past 1000 years in a very flawed manner but that doesn't mean we should continue the mistakes of our past anyway i think we are you know <laughs> getting a little preachy here so let's move on to the next part of it rish over to you yeah so from here i think we should go on to lakshadweep uh rishir i think you have something interesting about lakshadweep oh yes lakshadweep um so for those of our listeners who are probably outside of india and maybe not very familiar with the geography of this part of the world india actually has a bunch of islands to its name as well and they are union territories too and we'll explain we'll go into the details as well let me talk about the lakshadweep islands it is basically an archipelago of 36 islands in the arabian sea it's located around 200 to 440 kilometers or 120 to 270 miles off the main mainland india um out of the 36 islands only 10 are actually inhabited and lakshadweep in malayalam means 1 lakh islands the islands have been known to sailors since time immemorial and has been indicated by an anonymous reference from the 1st century ce to the region in periplus of the eritrean sea islam was established in the region when muslims arrived around the 7th century during the medieval period the region was ruled by the chera dynasty then the chola dynasty and finally the kingdom of kannur the catholic portuguese they arrived around 1498 but were expelled by 1545 the region was then ruled by the muslim house of arakal who were vassals to the kolathri rajas of kannur followed by tipu sultan on his death of tipu sultan's death in 1799 most of the region passed to the british and with their departure the you know the bunch of islands of lakshadweep finally became a union territory in 1956 and it is possible that the first european to visit the island was the italian explorer marco polo because he specified the top about female island now the reason doesn't mean that the islands were filled with females but it was more of a matriarchal system and as uh, shishir mentioned right that they since uh, so lakshadweep is very close to uh, kerala or rather not not close not in the sense of going and coming kind of like i can just go and come any time i want but it is actually closer to kerala and it had a distinct cultural aspect to it so when marco polo apparently mentions a female island in his 13th century travelog uh, some of them are speculating that he might be talking about lakshadweep uh, in 1498 when the portuguese arrived at this island they built a fort to control the trade particularly the trade in coir but as uh, shishir mentioned they were expelled in 1545 uh, no traces of freemasonry has been found in these islands in any of our searches if uh if obviously if anybody knows anything otherwise please do let us know uh and the reason why i actually felt that there might have not been any freemasonry brought by anyone uh first obviously european settlements over there was for a very few uh years and out of all the european settlements who could have come there it was portuguese like obviously they never got anything there with when it comes to freemasonry now that location wasn't that strategic even for the british 
to keep their forces for a long time. Because if you see the map of India, uh, Lakshadweep is like Lakshadweep and like it's it's in the southwestern section. Anything which needs to go across India can just go between all those places. It doesn't actually, or rather, it might not have helped them at that time. That that's my understanding. So as it was not that strategic, British obviously also had not kept their forces there for a long time. They might have done. Uh, they might have obviously kept it just for some administrative purposes, but otherwise no. So naturally, Freemasonry never came to this place. However, the modern times are obviously a bit different. To safeguard India's vital shipping lanes to the Middle East, because from the uh, east coast of India, when they obviously cross over from Sri Lanka, they have, they have to go towards uh, the the Arabian side or the Middle Eastern side. They have to kind of go through these places, and that might be one of the reason, or that is one of the reason, the relevance of the islands actually became increasingly important, especially for security considerations. And now there is an Indian Navy base, INS Deeparakshak, commissioned on the Kavarati Island. So that's about Lakshadweep. There's another bunch of islands called Andaman and Nicobar Islands. Now this is a much bigger set of islands. There are 572 uh, of these islands, out of which only 38 are actually inhabited. These are located on the trade routes from India to East Asia. So obviously, these islands fall towards the southeastern side of the country. These groups have also been known from the earliest of times. The 7th century Buddhist monk Ai Ching and, and the Arab travelers of the 9th century and even the most epic travel blogger that is Marco Polo <laughs> were among those who mentioned these islands. You know, I kind of, whenever I think of Marco Polo, for me, he's like, you know, the uh, quintessential mm-hmm. travel blogger. He's like the god yeah. of travel bloggers, I guess. And how epic can you get like his... His blogs, his so-called blogs are still known today. And thanks to this guy, there is so much of the world that we actually know of. And lo and behold, True. Lakshadweep and uh, Andaman Nicobar Islands are also you know, traveled by this uh, this one one individual in one lifetime has traveled so much. Mm. Anyway, <laughs> so the name Andaman uh, most likely is derived from the Hindu god Hanuman. And the name Nicobar probably derives from the Tamil word Nakavaram meaning land of the naked. The Andaman Islands are also home to the North Sentinelese people. They are, well, uh, they are an uncontacted, very ancient tribe actually, who are living exclusively in that little island, along with the great Andamanese, the Jarawas, the Onge, and the Shompen. Uh, then you have the Nicobarese, uh, Sentinelese we already mentioned are some of the different six natives that form, you know, the population of these islands, among several others from India as well. Uh, Unlike the others, though, the North Sentinelese Island people have consistently and quite, uh, well, let me just say, uh, um, quite violently, (laughs) they have refused any kind of interaction with the outside world. And the Indian government has respected their will to live the way they want to and have given them this privacy. So I guess it's more of a live and that live sort of a uh, scene with them. Ranish? Yeah. So, so the Andaman and Nicobar Island is also is very strategic uh, as compared to what we were talking about Lakshadweep. Andaman and Nicobar is on the eastern side of India, so like the east coast. And that is 
very important because any trade route which was between east india and east asia southeast asia right had to go through these islands or rather not through the sorry had to go around or somewhere near the island now history of organized european colonization on the islands begin when settlers from the danish east india company arrived on this islands in 1755 So the Nicobar Island was made a Danish colony and the Nicobar Island was first named as New Denmark and later was called as Frederick's Island. Now between 1754 and 1756 they were actually administered from the mainland uh, a place called Trankobar which was the continental Danish India. The islands were reportedly abandoned due to the outbreaks of malaria. You can obviously understand because these places were non touched by human that much as uh, shishir mentioned about the various tribes which used to live so for them it was okay but for us no because we have obviously come out of that whole olden style so we do not understand these things and we are not able to use the nature the way nature should be used so obviously it became a problem so it danish people or rather the danish east india company used to colonize this place or rather go to this place and then they will abandon because of the various diseases which used to come then they will go back and then they will come back well it kept on going Now from 1st of June 1778 to 1784 Austria mistakenly assumed that Denmark had abandoned its claim to the Nicobar Island because of this whole continuous to and fro which was happening and they even attempted to establish a colony there and called it Theresa Island in 1789 the British set up a naval base and a penal colony but it was abandoned again why due to the disease it was in mid 19th century concern over native attacks on shipwrecked crews and the need for a penal settlement after the indian mutiny uh, which was in 1857-58 the british returned to the andaman in 1858 they founded a new penal colony named port blair now this is where they started keeping the political prisoners now denmark's presence in the territory ended formally in 1868 where it sold the rights to nicobar islands to britain because this was at the time when i i somehow feel that whatever they wanted from this whole seafaring uh, work or trade route which they were doing they kind of got it and then they realized that they were not up to the mark in fighting the british or the french because they had armies they were able to do certain things otherwise danish east india company was at one point of time the biggest east india uh, the the biggest trade uh, company now Japanese forces occupied Andaman and Nicobar Island this group between 1942 to 45 during the Second World War. British recaptured the island but the penal colony in the Andaman was abolished uh, afterwards. Now administration of the Andaman and Nicobar was passed to India obviously after the independence in 1947 and the Andaman Cellular Jail the most famous cellular jail where the Indian political prisoners were held was actually declared a national movement uh, monument in 1979. um as a matter of fact this place also had a name in the local uh, uh language the place was called as kala pani kala means black and pani means water literally black water a black water cannot be drank like you you cannot escape this place this is in the middle of nowhere so it's there have been cases where people might have tried escaping from the island from the jail but ah, nevertheless never happened so while we were searching about Freemasonry in Andaman. I actually was under the assumption that, considering this place was used as uh, a place where the political prisoners are held, what exactly will Freemasonry do? But behold, I actually found that there were two lodges, or rather, there 
uh yeah there were two lodges which used to function during that time so lodge of the isles number 1103 was consecrated back in 1866 uh unfortunately it got erased in 1855 and then a light in andamans lodge number 6931 was consecrated in 1949 now if i look into the years when it was done the first one obviously was after the whole indian mutiny and uh, they obviously were trying to find a place where they can actually keep these political prisoners and they found uh, they had already found andaman and they kept it over there so around 1858 they founded this whole port blair uh, place uh, i'm assuming obviously british soldiers had to actually stay here and that's when the british soldiers at least thought that they wanted a freemasonic lodge uh, a little uh, i uh, very ironic right they they had political prisoners kept at one section and maybe in the other place i don't know where they used to meet but the other place used to actually have a, a free freemasonry in the same uh, in the same island at least if not for anywhere uh then we obviously had light in andaman lodge which started in 1949 now this was obviously after independence but by then freemasonry at least in india was still part of the united grand lodge of england at least the english ones so they obviously started a lodge in andaman which is very interesting i would definitely want to learn more about the history of uh, this lodge or rather why exactly did they think about it so the name of the lodge as i said is light in andaman number 6931 and if i look at the places where they used to meet right they obviously started in andaman islands but from there i think after 50s of 1956 they found it a bit difficult and they kind of moved to calcutta so now they are meeting at calcutta 19 park street where the freemasons hall is and uh, well the lodge still is called light in andaman well from here we still want to know which lodges are there in part of grand lodge of india luckily we actually have one and it is named after the most famous prisoner of this place veer savarkar so in back in 2016 there was a lodge which was consecrated veer savarkar number 419 under the grand lodge of india now this is going to be interesting shishir i think you and me can i would definitely love to actually travel from chennai via flight all the way to andaman maybe have a good uh, one week of uh, a, a break from our work maybe two weeks of break of our work and even actually have freemasonry there i definitely like this so talking about you know political prisoners and penal colony and kalapani there is another interesting note on the andaman islands and it involves a certain person named Morris Vidal Portman and Renesh will give us details about what this particular guy is all about. So Morris Vidal Portman was born in 1860 and uh, passed away in 1935. He was a British naval officer technically born in Canada who was best known for documenting several Andamanese tribes between 1879 and 1901 when he was actually posted as a superintendent of the Andaman Island Penal Colony. Now we have been talking about freemasonry now many of the people who have been listening to us if you actually ran, search about freemasonry will find out about a lot of stuff so in freemasonry there are many different orders it's it's like different groups which will obviously talk about different stories try to explain different moral stuff which uh, as a mason like shishir or me can actually join we are all part of the main unit which is what we called as the 3 degree system which is uh, we have to be that is like coming up and saying at least for an indian i would say that you have completed your 10th standard and after that only you can think about uh, joining a college and taking up multiple other subjects or something uh, obviously you will only select one specific stream but in freemasonry after you complete your 3 uh, degree system i can literally go into any of these subjects 
So one of this society or one of this group is called the August Order of Light. Now it's a society of Freemasons that supplies a series of grades and certain rituals it has, which illustrates the old world religion. And I'm not talking the religion in the aspect of what uh, we might know about. It is mostly the stories, the mythologies of uh, these places, like for example, from India, from ancient Egypt, Greece, and Rome. There is also something called as a Rosicrucian society. Uh, however, the Rosicrucian society illustrates the teaching of the Middle Ages of Europe. Whereas the August Order of Light gives the Oriental ideas of theology. Now, why am I bringing this? Now, these rituals in current form, the, with certain revisions which were there, was actually used or rather was, comes from the original literature supplied by Maurice Biddle Portman. He was a student of Oriental lore. He loved Orient. He was, an, uh, he was a politician. Now, during his stay here, Portman, who was, by the way, a Freemason, made himself familiar with the literature and ritual observance of Hindus, Buddhists, Jains, and even Muslims, and gained much curious stories from the fakirs and the religious devotees of all creeds. And for many years, as like for years when he was as a governor of the Andaman Island, he started collecting these traditions, either by listening to them and making notes about it. Uh, please do note that he was the guy who documented several of the Andamanese tribes. He was super interested in documenting all these things. So he even documented these old stories, these quaint traditions and arts from the natives and strangers from many Asiatic lands. That is what the August Order of Light is all about. Now, this order is open to obviously all master masons of good standing in the English, Scottish, Irish and other constitutions recognized by the United Grand Lodge of England. The order welcomes its member and this is where it becomes interesting to contribute to discussions so that all knowledge and opinion on relative subjects can be pooled together and each member does gain experience where he can apply for the good of Freemasonry and of the world. And it, I, I'm honestly being, I'm very proud to say that, that all these things happened in my country, in India. We have been talking about Freemasonry's history. We have been talking about where it started, what it took. It obviously did take the ideas, the ideologies from the East, but it still started in England, in, in UK, like English, Scottish and Irish people started there. But there is one order, which is the August Order of Light, which started in India. Isn't that interesting? And I'll add to that by saying this, that just see how the idea of universal brotherhood transcends you know, uh, any particular thought um, that might come from any source, right? So here we have a brother who was very passionate about the Orient and whatnot, and he studied, he observed, and he brought those, you know, gold nuggets of wisdom of, of you know, universal brotherhood together to form a new order by itself, right? It has nothing to do with religion but it has everything to do with being a human because humans are you know as an individual their experiences are different my experience differs from you the listener from Rinesh from anyone else and so does yours from us but at the same time there are learnings there are perceptions uh, there are perspectives that can be drawn from all these varied experiences that might uh, you know, culminate into something very common, something very simple and unique. It's just, uh, I would say, 10 different ways of saying the same thing. And I think this particular order, that is the August Order of the Light, 
is one fine example of that and like ranish uh, said mm. we are very happy for the fact that it you know came out of india um so with that you know folks this has been such an amazing journey uh when ranish and myself you know started this with episode 1 we would not have uh even imagined how this entire journey would have you know uh, come full circle and how it would make us feel and you know as we are closing this episode now and it also sort of you know ends season 1 uh it really makes me feel that as a person uh as an indian as a mason i really feel like i have you know gained quite a few steps uh when it comes to knowledge about not just um on masonry but also about our country about humanity about our world what do you think rinesh how do you feel i i kind of echo your thoughts right uh the idea was to talk about freemasonry that i think that is what we thought about right like and then the idea shaped a form saying let's talk about freemasonry in different places then the idea came wherein we say let's talk about the spread of freemasonry or the journey of freemasonry in our country and that's where we are 22 episodes later we have been we have actually covered almost not no not almost we have covered all the states of our country and all the union territories to explain where you can find freemasonry where uh with with obviously certain stories which are really interesting which were shared by most of these brethren whom we have been interacting in the past one year and uh I think for this episode or rather for this entire season I would like to thank each and every brother whom I have interacted with whom Shishir has interacted with this has obviously given us the knowledge as Shishir mentioned right this has actually given us that knowledge to make ourselves a better person to understand our history and make sure that we read we live in the present to make sure that our future is better and this each of our episodes were having uh obviously information about freemasonry we had episodes uh, we had information even about certain moral duties which we are talking about and this entire mixture is what we want to present to everybody and i think i should obviously thank each and every listener who has heard maybe 5 minutes maybe the entire episode maybe half an episode but without you guys listening to it this would not have been possible very beautifully put renesh and yes i too would like to personally extend my sincere thanks to every single person every single brother who came forward and helped us with you know all kinds of information our our calls our follow ups sms whatsapp and you know what not um so with that you know um this does not end here right this is only season 1 and the reason we are mm-hmm. calling it season 1 is obviously we have plans for season 2 But you know what? You know what, folks? We have something special for you guys. So let me set the picture for you. Okay, we have been talking about the spread of masonry in India, starting from the 1700s. Back then, India was nothing close to what we know it as today. Today, obviously, we have political boundaries, meaning demarcations of states, union territories, even countries that have been carved out of that huge land that India once used to be, right? so obviously if we are talking about something that has been spreading across since the 1700s in this you know geographical location of the earth there also it also goes without saying that there are other parts uh, you know in this particular area which also has seen masonry 
in some places it may still be existing some places it may not be but nevertheless it has been touched by the light of masonry and that is what we are planning to cover as a bonus episode towards the end of uh, as a bridge between season 1 and season 2 so we will be covering the neighboring countries of india namely we have myanmar sri lanka pakistan bhutan afghanistan uh, and china have i covered everything ranesh or did i miss something nepal nepal yes nepal as well so with that being said i would say look forward to that particular episode it's going to be quite interesting and with that thank you so much for your time thank you so much for listening we are all ears to any kind of feedback to any kind of thought that you feel can help us improve the episodes any corrections if it is out there please do let us know we will you know definitely mention those corrections and as always make sure to keep listening to our episodes that keeps us energized and any question about masonry please feel free to drop us a note we would love to answer your questions and help you out so with that thank you so much folks this has been a joy ride goodbye goodbye Well, that just about wraps it up, folks. We sincerely hope that you liked our episode and got a glimpse into the fascinating world of Freemasonry. And what better way than to hear about it from those who are the humble members of the Gentle Craft? If you have any queries about what we shared on this episode, or generally on this podcast, or even about Freemasonry, please check out the show notes. for links to the grand lords of india's website or feel free to write us an email please do look forward to the next episode